Hello, and welcome back to this Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we are once again here with the full crew, including tech editor Dave Rome in Sydney, editor-in-chief Kaylee Fretz, and our resident grumpy pro mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Boulder Group Hedo. Grumpy? <laughs> we, had, we have to keep up your, your, your pseudo reputation here, Zach. Skeptical. Try not to be too grumpy. <laughs> anyway... We have a really good show for you in store for today, covering all sorts of tech topics from some unfortunate occurrences in the Giro d'Italia recently and how the UCI could have prevented that, some rumblings of changes to UCI technical guidelines in general, and then another round of Ask the Mechanic, where we answer on the air your burning questions about gear and maintenance, and Zach promises to smile throughout. But first... <laughs> Always smiling. But first, but first, how's everyone feeling about the changing seasons right now? I had to wear arm warmers this morning. I kind of liked it, actually. Yeah, in a feeling vest. okay with it. I feel like the the no leg warmers, arm warmers vest, like 55 degrees is kind of a sweet spot. And we're, we're in it right now. I yeah. like it. Once it goes full full leg warmers all the time, then not as much. It, it's pretty refreshing, isn't it? Uh, it's massively refreshing. Like, I'm kind of, yeah. I'm also, I'm also ready for things to not be on fire anymore. We're going into that now. We're going into fire season. We had like a maximum total fire ban over the weekend. Uh, I rode when it was thirty-five degrees Celsius. So yeah, we're kind of going into opposite ends of uh, ends of the season right now. Well, I mean, all you have to get it, all you have to do is get on the right side of the equator, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then and then the problem will be solved. Yeah. It's so simple. Yeah. If only like aeroplanes. Would there's be- a lot. There's a lot of international travel going on right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Huge yes, amounts. Yes, Huge yes. amounts. Not a whole. I, I haven't been to an airport in quite a while now. It, like that has definitely been refreshing. I don't think I've been to an airport at all since February. It's been the longest time in fifteen years. Yeah, me too. Actually, I'm, I'm okay. With I love it, it at the moment. Like I'm get, kind of yeah. getting to the point where I'm ready to go somewhere, but I I'm perfectly okay with staying home for another few months. I'm good with it. One place I kind of wish I was at right now, though, and I would maybe be at in a typical year is the Giro. And I guess that'll mm. that'll be our first topic of the day because it was pretty eventful in the sense that Garrett Thomas, a big pre-race favorite, uh, crashed in the neutral zone of all places in stage three and then abandoned the next day because he crashed after running over a water bottle. Rough. So happens. <laughs> I mean, this this crash was kind of odd. Uh, in the sense that, again, it was in the neutral zone, so there was really nothing going on. No one was re- no one was really expecting anything to go on. But as they were rolling through town, they kind of went across this sort of raised intersection that was that was lined with kind of like paver stones instead of just tarmac or asphalt or whatever. And you could see riders' bikes kind of like suddenly kind of jumping up as they hit that little bump. And then you immediately saw all these bottles flying all over the place. And one of these went skidding across the road. Thomas ran over it with his front wheel and then boom, went down super awkwardly. That was done. So that immediately got me thinking that, you know, you see riders and teams all the time putting more securely fitting water bottle, uh, water bottle cages for stuff like Roubaix and Flanders and things like that. But, you know, they do that voluntarily. And there are all sorts of UCI rules governing everything from like, you know, sock height to handlebar end plugs to, you know, bike weight. You know, even where riders can get a bottle, but there's no rule regarding how securely a bottle cage can hold a bottle. Should there be? I mean, they have rules for lots of other random things. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm generally in fa- not in favor of additional UCI rules, but I think that maybe they could do something on this front. It just seems like a really, 
I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's not the place of UCI rule. Maybe it's just teams need to stop putting garbage bottles, bottle cages on team bikes. Uh, you know, if if a if they have the technology to keep a bottle in over the Aremberg Forest, they have the technology to keep a bottle in over literally anything the Giro can throw at them. So I don't really under, fully understand why they wouldn't do that. It's probably a matter of like a couple grams or something like that. Again, I'm not really sure that it's the UCI's place, although it would be one of the easier things for them to do. I think they, you know, you just dr- drop a bottle, make a make a re- make a regulation for how exactly the size that they need to be and things like that. Yeah, I, I it's it seems like a really silly problem to have not been fixed yet. I just don't know if it's should be fixed by the UCI in particular. Well, I think, well who else would fix it though? Yeah, and it's quite a common issue. Like True. if you look over the history of, you know, maybe the last 10 years, there actually have been quite a few cases at this level of riders being crashed out purely from a you know, hitting a water bottle. Um and you know, back in 2012, Cancellara had the same issue where he ended up getting I think he might have broken a collarbone through hitting a water bottle. Um and he at the time actually called for the UCI to look into it, uh, and he asked that um, screw top bottles be made illegal, and that they all go back to uh, pop cap bottles in uh, in an attempt that you know if you did hit a bottle, that at least it would explode open, and therefore you wouldn't be hitting something that slides your wheel out. Uh, so, and there, nothing happened from that. Well, and that's interesting too, because I mean, yeah, Dave, like you said, there have been a number of riders taken out. I mean, I, we posted an article, uh, I guess by the time you hear this, it'll be yesterday, I guess, um, where, you know, I kind of went through a few examples of riders that had gone down. The Cancellara was definitely one of them. You know, Jakob Fogelsang was taken out. Uh, I can't remember. It was like 2014, maybe. There are all sorts of examples. And these are just you know, kind of higher profile ones that we know about. And who knows how many riders have been taken out by errant water bottles, you know, in general at races, not in races, you know, amateur event, that sort of thing. Like you, which one of us has not gone to some sort of big amateur event and not seen bottles all over the place. Yep. yep. I know um, someone that stopped riding because they hit a bottle in a race that exploded and, their knee. Ooh. Well, Ouch. And it's interesting that you talked about the pop top thing because, you know, to my understanding, that's actually one of the reasons why elite water bottles, most of them, at least anyway, even the ones that are screw top still have like a pop top element to them. Like they're not really meant to be popped open, but if you run them over, they'll still pop open. If you look at that video, though, that's, you know, there's a link to it in the article that that we posted about this. Um, if you look at that video, it does look like the pop did pop off of the bottle that Thomas ran over. So I'm not sure how much that would help anyway, mm. unless it would have popped off really easily. Um, I think it was more that he hit it with his front wheel. He certainly wasn't expecting it. And then at that point, you know, his wheel wasn't going straight anymore. It just, it just like a really, it looked like a really awkward, hard, hard crash. And obviously he didn't recover from it very well. He ended up with a broken pelvis. Uh, I mean, I think that's sort of the, the, the underlying issue here is things probably shouldn't fall off your bicycle while you're racing it. Generally not great if things are falling off your bicycle while racing it. So there has to be a way to prevent that from happening. I mean, I have, I have bottle cages on my bike, king cages that will never eject a bottle. Like the the bike would break before you would eject a bottle out of these these cages, and I don't really understand why that can't be a thing elsewhere. Well, you were saying earlier, Kaylee, that you don't really understand why teams can't just run cages that hold on better to a bottle. But I mean, ultimately, we all know, you know, yes, yeah, some of these bikes are still heavier than riders would want them to be. They have teams uh, they have equipment sponsors that provide them with bottles and cages 
And those companies more likely than not are going to want to supply these teams with like their, their highest end, fanciest, most expensive carbon fiber bottle cages. And, you know, we all know that carbon fiber bottle cages are not all created equal. I mean, some of them hold really, really well, like, you know, that Arundel mandible and that sort of thing, but there are a whole bunch of other ones out there that barely hold on at all. Um, whether it be on the road or a mountain bike and, and, and there's no real rhyme or reason or predictability. Like, it's not like, it's not like bottle cages have a rating on them on the package that show how hold, uh, how well they hold. I mean, I would, I would argue like, yes, there are a lot of terrible bottle cages out there, but I would also argue at the pro level, a lot of it probably is the bottles that they're using. Like the, the protein bottles are just absolutely garbage. They're made to be disposable and as cheap as possible. Usually they're kind of undersized. They're super flimsy. Like that's not gonna gonna stay in there, even if you have a good cage, right? Um, I mean, and it did look like a lot of the bottles that were being ejected. I mean, they all looked red, from what I could tell. So, I mean, I know neutral bottles are typically red, but this was at the beginning of the stage, so I'm not really sure why there would have been so many neutral bottles flying around. Um, but either way, even if we have a situation where you know pro bottles are kind of cheap and flimsy, meant to be disposable, that kind of thing. I mean, if that's the case, then there should be, again, some sort of regulation in place that dictates what sort of combinations are allowed in a race so that we don't have these little things flying all, all over the place, right? Uh, well, for, I think the I think the red bottles are neutral bottles. It's often there's often like a just an a, array of bottles and food at sign in, and riders will often grab you know sort of random snacks and and just a bottle of water. Basically, it's you know it's not probably doesn't have anything else special in it, but they also don't need anything else special for the first half hour of racing. So those probably were a lot of neutral bottles. Uh, I don't know who provides them at the Giro this year. We could probably look into that. But my question is like, what would this look like? What what would what would a bottle test look like? I mean, if the UCI is gonna is gonna implement this as a rule, well, first and foremost, we don't necessarily trust them to do it uh, particularly well. That's that's worth saying. Uh, but if we were going to implement a water bottle bidon holder test, what, what just run it over some cobbles? Yes, yes. What was that? What was that speed even bump like? at full speed. Well, I, I would say first and foremost that it'd be a guarantee that if the UCI actually does put this into place, that it'd be far more complicated, far more expensive, and far more or far less reliable than it should be. But that being said, um, I mean, a test like this doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, you do have to identify a typical force that you would encounter, you know, in a cobble or in like some sort of big bump, something like that, and then have some sort of safety factor on top of that. And then you could do just a very basic drop test, even like, you know, you could do it at home with like a two by four on a hinge, that sort of thing. As long as you predict very reliably what the drop height is and, you know, what the force is going to be, you know, whether the bottles fill, the angle of a cage, that sort of thing. Like it doesn't have to be complicated. That all sounds pretty boring. I mean, I'm envisioning uh, uh, like a wild, like the bucking bull that you get at pretty, you know, at some of these, uh, some, some, uh, <laughs> some fancy bars. Um yeah, I'm imagining something like that, that. The bike just gets <laughs> strapped onto this uh, mechanical bulb, and then it goes through a, a series of a minute. And if it can survive, then it's, it's deemed a winner. How great would that be if they just if if the UCI, you know, they have their they have their big X-ray machine, mm -hmm. right? That they bring all the races. <laughs> exactly. They also towed out a mechanical yeah. bull covered <laughs> covered in <laughs> covered in water bottle cage yes. mounts. And the mechanic from every team has to come over and put 
mount their own bottle cage on the mechanical no, no, no. bull, stick their water ball in it, and then hit go. And no, no, you know, no, no. it's got to last eight seconds, or else it doesn't. That's the last eight seconds. The race. What would happen is every every rider would actually have to get on the bull with the bottle and cage somehow, and then if that rider can survive eight seconds, that cage is good to go. Yeah, yeah, that's how just, it should they be. They just bolt their bike into like a trainer that's mounted on the bull, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. simple. <laughs> All right, you know, Nothing you know, can go wrong here. The, the UCI is listening to this right now. Hopefully, they're taking notes. You know, if, if UCI, if you are listening, if you end up taking this to heart and you develop this test that we are describing in detail, please make sure that there is a cycling tip logo somewhere on the side of the bowl. Please, that's all we ask. There's, I feel like there's this is just not something that the UCI though should ever remotely consider. Like, why a why are teams wanting to run crappy bottle cages? Like, the team should go and say, no, we don't want to run this. Like, you see some teams do that for the classics. They put the cheaper models on just run those all the time those bond trigger bat cages are exactly. sweet yeah or like where's the accountability and calling out these companies that are making these terrible cages that don't actually work like, well no why but- is this the uci's fault this is a, it's like what else causes crashes like oh we're gonna regulate how worn people's cleats are because they could pull out of their pedal i think we should do a water bottle test we need to get ourselves a mechanical bull just rent one of those yeah you can ct sure budget you can rent one <laughs> Of course, I'm sure you could rent yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Guarantee you could rent a yeah, mechanical sure. bull. Yeah, who hasn't? <laughs> I, I, I feel, I feel a video coming on here. <laughs> I mean, at the very least, like genuinely, I think it would be a pretty interesting group test. Just get like 40 bottle cages and figure out some kind of test where we just mount them up to a two by four and like whack it with something and see what I mean, happens. And just we... like literally, just tell people, you know, okay, these are the ten that actually work. These are the thirty that your bottle's gonna fall out and just. A, stop buying them because then maybe the brand will stop selling them. <laughs> I mean, right. Like the thing is though, we already know the answer to that. Like king cages, if you want metal are great and aren't going to lose the bottle and they'll last forever. And if you want carbon, get a rundle. Like, yep. That's, that's what this mechanical bull test is going to show. <laughs> Did we just do this entire segment just for a mechanical bull joke? I think uh, we may have. Genuine question. Have. And, that, okay. and that wasn't planned either. wasn't planned. Yep. For those, for <laughs> those in New South Wales of, uh, or in Sydney, if you call 1-800-BIG-FUN, you can hire a mechanical bull. <laughs> Pricing is uh, to be quoted, but uh, yeah, as appeared on Sunrise television show. Um, I might have to make a call after this. Oh, man. All right. Well, Dave, just make sure you have a videographer on hand. Okay. Will do. Speaking speaking of rules, though. So, Dave, you heard recently that there are some changes afoot with the existing UCI rules in regards to the shape of bikes to come. Dave, what are we talking about here? What is about to happen? Yeah, it's nothing it's nothing too major on on paper, but I guess in in reality it could lead to some important and larger changes as as brands realize the possibilities here. So, uh yeah, basically the the rumors were that uh the UCI was going to uh had approved some changes um presented to them by the uh the World Cycling uh by the World Technical Product Federation. Um James, what's what's the name there? The WFSGI. Uh, WFSGI. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea what it stands for, but I know the letters. Yeah. So it's like World Federation of Sporting Goods Industry. That's the one. Yes. Something like that. That's exactly that what sounds it is. Right. Uh, so the sounds like people that don't ride bikes. <laughs> so they had proposed a whole bunch of changes, and the UCI had apparently approved them for um, coming into effect from the first of January, twenty twenty-one. Uh, and basically, what they were was the combination of um, yeah rules relating to frames. So that road track 
cyclocross and I believe time trial frames would converge into the one ruling, which meant that uh, I guess some requirements around time trial frames versus road frames would sort of converge and that it would allow road frames to take on things like um, compensation triangles that would allow for deeper tube profiles. Uh, and then in turn, that they'd also reduce the profile limits or the thickness limits of tube shapes. So it's currently a maximum of eight centimeters with a minimum of 2.5. Uh, and the rumors were suggesting that it would go down to a minimum of one centimeter. So you could have a you could have a tube that's one centimeter wide, yep. uh, which is already allowed. It wouldn't necessarily be like a down tube or something like that. Um, it but could like be. you look at the, it could be. But if you look at the you know the 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 UK team track bike you know that was made by that was made by Hope and and um, uh, why can't I think Lotus. Of that was made by Lotus. Lotus. You know if you look at that thing, you know those like the fork blades and. And, you know, I guess you can call them seat stays. I mean, they were like paper thin. They were incredibly, incredibly thin. So it does open up the possibility that something like that could theoretically exist on the road or track, of course. I mean, it's already on the track um, or or TT. So it, it, it I mean, who knows what things could look like exactly? I mean, we do know someone who's got a bit of an inside line on that. So before we discuss this more, Dave, you did an interview with Graham Schreib, who is currently the director of engineering at Factor. He's formerly the director of engineering at Cervelo. Uh, so if anyone's got an inside line on what's going on here, it's him. So let's take a quick listen to what he had to say, and they will, then we'll jump back into this conversation. Graham, there's uh, some rumors going out there that the UCI is due to change some, uh, some rules related to dimensions of bikes um keen to get your insight into what this could mean uh so do you think some of the bikes hitting the market already aren't quite following the existing rules uh no i mean they're, they're pretty particular uh when you submit for uh, your uci approval and, and they go over the drawings pretty carefully um you know particularly with the minimum cross sections you know that's always a, a point of friction um where we're in in some cases you uh you actually, uh, you know, even if you're off by 0.13 millimeters, which we got stung with recently, um, you still have to go in and change all the drawings. And, you know, our reasoning with that bike that we got kind of, we had to change some CAD around on was that uh, we actually built up that outside thickness with paint a little bit. So we undersized the seat stay so that it comes up to be one centimeter when it's complete. Um, but because of the nature of the use of rules where the drawings can't be below that uh, one centimeter value, you have to go back and fix it. So I mean, they're definitely looking, and they're, they have a very high attention to detail. Their reviewer, uh, Andre, is, uh, seems to be quite uh, diligent, and you can't really slip one by them. Yeah, interesting. What about bikes that have made it to production that perhaps don't match the, the submitted uh, files? Well, the, you know, the UCI does give you an allowance of plus or minus one millimeter um, when they 3D scan the frame. Um, and I, again, I think that is probably something that's not very common uh, if anything, frames will usually get a little bit bigger as you apply paint and, and clear coat and that kind of stuff to them. Um, so unless somebody's being, you know, they have a lot of time on their hands and they're doing like two sets of drawings, um, which you know, I guess I wish I could be nefarious enough to do that, but I'm too busy. Um, they're probably they're probably all compliant. Interesting, interesting. And I guess looking at the current rules, where do you feel like the the current rules are most restrict restrictive of uh, I guess design. Um, you know, definitely that the, the minimum thicknesses has caused a lot of people a lot of challenges over over time. Um, you know, having to have the main tubes be two and a half centimeters uh, minimum thickness yeah. creates uh, some challenges, especially if you're working on like 
let's say a comfort oriented bike uh, that may be intended for Paris-Roubaix or something like that, where you might want to thin down a section of the seat tube. Um, for example, the Focus, uh, I believe the Focus Paralane um, had a bit of a challenge with that, where they had they had some ideas of, of making a really skinny seat tube, uh, and they, they had to go either back to the drawing board or not get it UCI approved because you couldn't flatten it down as much as what they wanted to. Mm. Um, so that's definitely somewhere that, that uh, would have a really immediate effect on all different kinds of frame design, not just aero bikes or, uh, or uh, TT bikes. It would, it would change all different bikes. Interesting. Okay, so it's not just purely about the narrowing of the profile you know could introduce ideas of like leaf springs and that type of thing yeah definitely and you know another big challenge point that uh we i don't know if it's going to be addressed or not is is the continuance of the three to one rule on components such as handlebars and stems and handlebar stem interfaces um you know that that continues to be a, a problem they've removed it on the rest of the frame but it still exists on components which is a bit kind of arbitrary and a little bit frustrating as a designer you know we'd love to see things like uh for example a base bar on a tt bike that was just a totally flat sheet of carbon you know that would be pretty cool Hmm. Uh, but unfortunately that's not not really possible right now yeah interesting okay uh so you know the uci currently states that the maximum height of the element shall be eight centimeters and the minimum thickness of 2.5 centimeters um yeah what performance opportunities do you think exist beyond you know like uh speaking aerodynamically what performance opportunities exist uh if that minimum thickness was reduced like have you is that something you've ever tested say for triathlon bikes um not necessarily specifically for tri bikes i've done some work on that in the past with fork legs in particular okay uh, because the fork leg is allowed to be one centimeter uh based on the current rules mm-hmm. um you know and eight centimeters as well so that's that's definitely where we've tested that shape more um you know, the seat stays are always a really interesting spot as well because they are allowed to be down to one centimeter. Um, you know, and if you look at what uh, was done with the Hope Lotus bike, it shows that, you know, you can do something really cool with them. It's just they're kind of a challenging spot. Um, so I haven't I haven't stretched that dimension that much in the seat stay area because they do get a bit heavy. On the main tubes, you know, the, the struggle is going to be is that uh, it's going to be really difficult to make a one centimeter wide tube that's that's reasonably stiff. Um, if you look at the way that a bike performs uh, when riding, I mean, generally speaking, the head tube, down tube, um, bottom bracket chainstays carry the majority of the torsional and, and BB stiffness. Um, the C tube contributes for sure, as is the top tube, but, you know, the, to the large extent, it's that down tube uh, kind of area. Um, and if you reduce the thickness of that, I mean, you've got a limited amount of eye value that, you know, it doesn't really matter how stiff the carbon is you put in there. Without that eye value to complement it, you're, you're going to be really fighting an uphill battle to get it uh, to be rideable. Yeah, if, if you look at our, if our, if you look at our slick, I mean, it's a good example of where things might go. Um, you know, if you if you could get away from that two and a half uh, centimeter rule, because you know, if you have twin members, for example, you can probably gain back that stiffness. Um, so you know, that it could be pretty exciting. That kind of stuff. Yeah, interesting. So I guess existing time trial bikes could uh, could be a strong example of where road bikes could go if if these rules prove to be uh, true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, compensation triangles are uh, are definitely something that everybody would like to see. And then, you know, if we can get that depth of the head tube area that you can get on a TT bike, on a road bike, I mean, you could do some really neat things with the uh, with like a bayonet style uh, fork. I mean, it's been done a number of times. Uh, for example, on our one, mm-hmm. um, there is a bayonet style fork, but it's it's fairly short because that combination of, of fork, uh, external steer, and um, and head tube have to still add up to eight centimeters. Um, wow. So if you could get that fork full depth there are 16 centimeters you get on a tt bike you could do something really neat yeah interesting you mentioned compensation triangles um that's something that we see on you know i guess triathlon bikes and time trial bikes if i'm not mistaken but uh 
what's what's the idea there? Can you explain that? Uh, they, they allow you to put an 8 centimeter compensation triangle behind most of the main tubes. Uh, you know, a good example that you see quite frequently is at the junction of the top tube and the seat tube. Um, you know, and you do get an opportunity there when you create more surface area um, that you can, you can generate, you know, a little bit more uh, lift or a little bit better flow attachment over that part of the bike. Um, you know, I've seen in the past that it doesn't necessarily correlate with a huge gain in performance, but there is definitely some gain in the performance there. And then if you get really creative with things like uh, your your C plus clamp pocket and a number of other kind of tricks that you can pull in that area, um, you know, you've even seen some people put storage in there, for example, as well, uh, mm. for snacks and stuff. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunities there that, you know, I think that as a bike designer, what what you really want is the freedom to uh, to kind of do as you please. Um, you know, and, and that's, you know, that kind of freedom gives you the variety of really cool bikes that are out there. And, and that's what I think everybody's really after is just, Maybe everybody comes back to a similar design to what they have right now, but they'll be able to explore that more fully. And, and I think that that variety and, and uh, complexity is good for the industry. I think it's good for everybody. Yeah, that, that's something we spoke about previously with the uh, the Ostro, because um, you were behind the, the Factor Ostro design. And you mentioned that these days, so many of the aero bikes, road aero bikes on the market are you know getting ridiculously close to each other, uh, where it's tough to measure how... Uh, you know how to separate these bikes uh do you think you know if if these rules are relaxed that we'll see uh i guess a new frontier and big gaps again in the aero bike world yeah i, th I think that you know those base shapes will still probably stay pretty similar i mean you know the the most of the tube shapes are derived from NACA profiles that came out of the 1930s um maybe there's some other you know there's some other variants there but you, you know the basic airfoil uh you know low drag airfoil at uh, low reynolds numbers has been figured out for a long time um, you know, so I think that from that perspective, from an absolute perspective, uh, it probably won't really move the needle a whole lot. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is, is it enables you to do some crazy things with the bikes. It's really going to start to become interesting to see who has the ability to do those crazy things. Okay. Uh, you know, which organizations have the, the corporate willpower to fight their way through some of these, you know, really wild manufacturing challenges that you get if you do. Some you know, it, let's say if you if you had a really skinny down tube, you know, and you, you had to get into very very exotic fibers to get it stiff enough, um, you know, I think it'll show the companies that are really serious about performance, um, you know, and, and that's going to be extremely cool to see. Yeah, cool. So it could be uh, interesting times ahead for bike designers. Yeah, I think I think for sure that there's there's uh, you know if if they do make these changes and they move forward with it, then um, then it it will definitely spur quite a bit of innovation, some really cool new bike designs. But the interesting thing is, you know, the UCI is a relatively conservative body and they've maintained for some time that, you know, that principle of, you know, it still needs to look like a bike. You know, I don't see them backing away from that anytime soon. So, you know, I don't think it'll it'll be to the, let's say, the 90s level of like funny bikes with small front wheels and, and that kind of stuff, which, you know, generally speaking, I, I agree with as, a, you know, definitely as an advocate for consumers, I don't think that, you know, anybody wants to get into... Um, a, you know, a situation where you've got to use a certain wheel or you've got to use it mm. because you're limited by diameter or you have a really poor selection of tires or, you know, those kind of things that uh, that kind of compromise the experience. So I think it'll, it'll be some really cool bikes that look like bikes and, and hopefully still work with kind of most components. Yeah, great. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, so yeah, since that interview uh, where... 
Graham Shrive wasn't necessarily admitting to that the rules were approved, but you know, I was just asking him for a bit of background on that. Uh, since then, we've actually received an email from the UCI confirming that these rules are indeed true uh, and that they will be coming into effect from January 1st. Uh, what remains to be seen is whether all the rules that were rumored are agreed upon, uh, but I believe that will be the case. Um, so yeah, most most interestingly, part of that is actually a, a rule relating to where the seat post has to be. So currently the UCI requires that the seat post follows in a direct path of the seat tube, uh, and it looks like they're changing that. So they will be allowing the seat post to be attached to the chop... Uh, they will be allowing the seat post to be attached to the top tube in addition to the seat tube if you wanted it to be. I mean, so essentially they're making it so that, you know, bikes used on the road and in time trials could potentially look more like triathlon bikes in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. right? Yep, exactly. So yeah, there's, there's some interesting things here. Um, you know, speaking of Graham, I believe he thinks that the biggest changes here will actually be in the mass market, more comfort oriented bikes, uh, you know, with the, with regards to the thickness differences and all that, he thinks that, you know, there's limitations, you know, a one centimeter down tube will have stiffness issues is sort of what he's suggesting. Uh, you don't say. Yeah. Uh, and that unless there's some <laughs> major changes in the materials being used or, you know, the processes being used, uh, he believes that, you know, in the short term, we'll see things like more comfortable seat posts and more comfortable seat tubes being used rather than true aerodynamic gains. Bring yeah. that slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, I mean, clearly it'd be an arrow-shaped cable at that point, mm -hmm. though, right? Like you, can't, <laughs> you can't just have a round cable going no down way. there. It's so on arrow. Um, so recently we did, a, we did a podcast with the people at Canyon, which I think may have actually just dropped yesterday, Kaylee. Is that right? Um, it is up, yep. So in that podcast, you know, the new UCI rules is actually something I brought up with them um, because, th again, this is obviously something that they would be privy to. And their response was pretty interesting because while on the surface, you would think that, you know, if you get rid of this three to one profile rule that has dictated bicycle design for so long, you would think that a lot of companies would be chomping at the bit to be like, oh man, we can make like a six to one profile now. These bikes would be so much faster. The, the Canyon people though, seemed pretty lukewarm to that idea though, because, you know, at least if you take what they were saying at face value, you know, bikes have already gotten so good and companies are already able to make bikes just faster aerodynamically than how they might be already now. But a lot of companies, including Kenyon, elect not to do that because they don't want to also sacrifice things like stiffness and weight and rider comfort because, you know, you can make a bike super hyper aero, but if it rides like a block of concrete and if it weighs twice as much as a bike that is that you have now, no one's going to want to ride it. And, you know, it seems like that's where we were five years ago or seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, like, like there's lots of bikes back, lots of aero bikes back then that just rode like absolute garbage, and now that's pretty rare. It really is. Like most of the aero bikes these days ride uh, pretty well because they've all kind of stepped back a little bit. I would say. So are these new rules is it a positive thing? Like, are we looking for good changes, or do you think it's just gonna we're gonna go back to aero bikes that ride terribly? I guess the first thing I want to say is. The fact that the WF SGI, the fact that they were the ones lobbying for this, I mean, that that basically tells me that bike companies on the whole were pretty much maxed out or at least close to it in terms of what they felt like they could do with the existing rules as far as, you know, increasing the performance of bikes as they are now. So, Is that a bad thing, though? Well, no, it's not necessarily a bad <sighs> thing. Um, 
so I mean, for, for me, first and foremost, the fact that they were lobbying for this tells me that you know, bikes were about as good as they could get, or like at least they felt like the the gains that they were making now were awfully small considering the effort that they have to put in. So in that sense, I think this rule change is really good because it'll offer up a lot more freedom for designers to kind of just do more different things to a bike to not just improve aerodynamic performance or, you know, help people go faster, but that one centimeter rule in particular very much has the, has the potential to make bikes a lot more comfortable than they are now. Like you look at, like you look at bikes, like, you know, the stuff that Rob English is doing over at English cycles, um, you know, those bikes are made out of steel. Those seat stays are ridiculously thin and you know, I, they, they're definitely not a centimeter wide. And so, you know, that wouldn't be UCI legal, but those bikes are supposed to be mega comfortable. And then, you know, you have this bike also like the, you know, the GT grade gravel bike. I'm not actually sure if that's UCI legal, but you know, those seat stays are also really thin, certainly much thinner than normal. And that bike is really pretty comfortable as well. So if you were able to offer offer engineers and designers that new level of freedom to make things smaller, not necessarily more aero, bikes could potentially be a lot better just for the average person. Yeah. And the other thing, like the UCI's point on this, um, I'll add this to the article that's already published, but um, the UCI's response, but basically they're, they're saying it's all about, you know, equity and sport. Um, and it could actually be quite cool. Like, you know, these, these new rulings basically allow you to use a road frame in a cyclocross event. And, you know, as road frames are getting wider and tire clearance, I mean, that's, that's quite a cool idea to be able to, you know, maybe put like your 33 millimeter file tread into like a, you know, a specialized tarmac and rock up at a national level cyclocross race and race that thing. I mean, that's, that's sort of where the UCR is trying to go with these rules. Uh, and I think, you know, there is definitely some good things here. I think I think we're going to see some brands go full hog on the arrow thing too. Oh, no question. Right? I mean, I mean, it's, it's going to happen. And we're, we are, like, to kind of answer Zach's question, like there's going to be some bikes that ride like garbage a year or two from now, but are also really, really, really fast and faster than anything that's currently available because – you know, the rules have changed and, and you can now make more aerodynamic tube profiles that, that is like, you know, all of the CFD and all the math works out on that front. Uh, and there are, there are certainly brands that are going to take advantage. You know, maybe this is why we saw the, the, you know, the SL seven come out and, and kind of kill the venge. Maybe there's a venge that's coming out with these new, uh, you know, with these new profiles in, in a year. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. I think a lot of the big brands will probably, they'll, they'll take a step into this, like, let's see how era we can make a bike again. But those bikes will be a lot less versatile than, than you know, the stuff that's available right now, which is like Avenge right now, uh, you know, the, the difference between that and SL7 is so marginal from a weight perspective, from a ride quality perspective. But if they really went further down the arrow road, it would it would that 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 gulf would get bigger right the gap between those two bikes would get a lot bigger and i i think that gap will allow you know uh people that say do a bit of road racing and do maybe some triathlons to have just one bike that they they use across both events um and and on that note i also am going to speculate that we're going to see like uh snack boxes integrated into frames I would be in. I would be in favor of that for sure. Yeah, those more who snack love boxes. A snack box? <laughs> <laughs> I don't love a snack box. <laughs> yeah. So those compensation triangles that were mentioned, uh, it allows basically a, an eight centimeter isosceles triangle to be uh, put into the key junctions of the frame. So say like between the head tube and the top tube, or the the seat tube and the top tube. Uh, 
and yeah if you look at triathlon bikes they're, they're starting to use the that lot of you know that larger surface area to actually store things inside um i wouldn't be surprised if we see that come across i mean i don't know about you but i just like take my cliff blocks and just lick them and stick them on my top (laughs) (laughs) get a nice coating of dust on there yeah Uh, we zach and i did a cross-country race a secret cross-country race over the weekend with no actual people it was just the two of us and uh well there are other people that did it at different times best way to win a race we were discussing how great (laughs) (laughs) this was our plan we didn't win we invited a few others and they all beat us but uh we were discussing how great it was back in the old xc days when you would just tape goose to your top gel packets and and just yank them off i want i want integrated goo storage on my next my next no i don't i don't want any of that it's it's gonna that's what the screw top water bottle is for you (laughs) tuck the goo under there kaylee it's gonna it's gonna have to be uci mandated though because these use you know these goo packets are gonna have to be a very standardized shape and then the interface (laughs) on the top tube is gonna have to be completely standardized you know how that recesses in there i mean otherwise you can put your gels the glue and they act as a fairing yeah Yeah, I mean, like, you know, you're going to have to have rules. Stack them up behind your stem in a nice arrow shape. (laughs) What if if the UCI's answer to, uh, you know, drop-free bottle cages is actually just bottle compartments that you like, you know, you open a hatch in your frame and then you pull your bottle out? Even better, what if you have a hydration bladder in your frame with a hose that comes out at the handlebars? Oh, that's so brilliant. If only some... Oh, wait, 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 what? Wait, the so, world's worst idea. Wait, so w- yeah. which which one? But wait, but which one? Which one do I drink out of though? And which one do I pee into? It's, all, it's just a cycle. You just pee in one and drink at the other end. There's a, there's a filter in the bottom bracket. Oh, that is so wrong. So so wrong. Yeah. Yet so, we love you, triathletes. Yeah, so, but amazing. you do yeah. gross things. And and we joke, but I think unfortunately, uh, a lot of the things seen in triathlon, uh, seen on triathlon bikes, at least, uh, you know. Some of those things may start to influence what we see in uh, on the road, given these new rules. Well, the it, forefront of idiocy. The, the, well, the thing is, as much as we make fun of all this stuff, I mean, for a lot of mainstream riders, I mean, a lot of this stuff does make sense. It's like you know, you know, Kaylee, you know, you and I are not necessarily fans of top tube feedbacks, for example, but they are really popular for people who just like having snacks and whatever just you know really conveniently placed and realistically a lot of them probably are just cruising around and aren't necessarily pedaling that much out of the saddle anyway right i mean when um, you ride in a t-shirt you need somewhere to put your food well yeah yeah I that's mean, the hip hip trend these days it, it it's is. true all the college kids here in boulder are riding in t-shirts and, and bike shorts that's the that's the vibe right now and with and the handlebar bag i i would say what that's called but i can't say it uh on the radio where that's do they uh, word. where do they put the coronavirus sprayer <laughs> Yes, <laughs> it is. They are the coronavirus sprayer. Oh, college students. Well, I guess it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. Of course, you know, I can't help but wonder if there are going to be a whole bunch of bike companies with pretty high profile launches starting you know, right after the turn of the year. Um, I mean, I guess we'll find out. But, you know, given how hard it is already to convince pros and even skeptical amateurs that, you know, aerodynamics matter more than weight, um, you know, we're so far into the whole era movement that it's still kind of amazing that that's still an issue. But again, I mean, not everyone only cares about going fast, but, you know, I can't help but wonder if, or I guess how much of an impact this is going to have, you know, whether it's as impactful as we even think. So I guess time will tell. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the big takeaway here is the more the rules get relaxed, the more options engineers have to specialize bikes, to, to make bikes more specific to their actual use. Right. So this a, 
op- offers up options to make bikes more comfortable. That's great for one set of user. B makes bikes more aerodynamic. That's great for a totally different set of users, right? And, and the, the whole point here is that if you open up the rules, you can make those those two bikes can can split further than they are right now. And frankly, I think that's that's generally good for I mean for bike people out there. To me, though, the irony is like all the latest trend of bikes are these lightweight still aero bikes and all the companies marketing is like this is the one bike you don't need two separate bikes anymore so it'll be really funny to me when we go back to two yeah, bikes and that's that's funny that you raised <laughs> that point because the uci's stance on this is that it promotes equity to of access to equipment for teams and national federations um so i mean the whole idea of this is that they're converging the rules to uh, reduce the need for overlap of product and make it and make all this <laughs> I mean, more there, accessible. There are some but, teams now that they still don't even have aero bikes as it is. Like the smaller teams yeah. are on basically ten year old design. Yeah. Do, I mean, do do, Nash, do they do they honestly think that national federations are going to are are going to reuse the team's road bikes for I mean, cyclocross track. worlds? No. Like well, no, what, what on earth are they I, talking about? I borrowed <laughs> borrowed a bike in uh, Holland in the Netherlands from USA cycling, the U S national federation here. And the, the bikes that they have are, uh, I mean, 10 plus years old, like felt road bikes. Like they're not all of a sudden going to be like, Nope, we got to get a new fleet because they changed the rules (laughs) and we got to get these new bikes. Well, it's always funny, like, you know, the UCI oftentimes assigns this kind of equity and sport label to the rule changes and stuff like that. But it just reminds me of you know, however many years ago, what, 10 plus years ago when they when they changed the rules about cyclocross tire widths, when they went, you know, back when everyone was running, what was it, like 32s and 34s, and then they decided like, no, 33 is going to be it. And like, it's supposed yep. to be for equity in sports so that people don't have to have so many tires. And all it ended up doing was forced everyone who had a whole fleet of 32s and 34s to buy a whole bunch of 33s. Yeah, so like, it's I would, not like it mattered at all. I would argue though, I would argue that, that like as someone who used to race cross at a higher level, like you used to have so many wheel sets and you would have your dry and your mud and you would have those all in a 32 and a 34. And then you did like the tires don't last more than the season anyways. Yeah. So then you just reduce all that. But let me. Zach has a phone call. Uh, the peskiness of Zach actually trying to run his business while we're running a podcast here. <laughs> the nerve of that guy. Last time the phone call was just a spam call. Uh, this one sounds like a real phone call. I, mm. I like that there hasn't been an episode in recent memory where where Zach's business hasn't gotten in the way of... Uh... I know, I know. <laughs> I like. I feel like we should play into it a bit more. Can we, can we just have like elevator music for a few seconds or something? All right, well, enough about UCI rules. I think it's time for Ask a Mechanic because it's been a while since we've done one of those and I think it's time we get back into the swing of things. Ask away. Uh, let's see. Music I'm ready break, with answers. Something, something, something. All right. Okay. All right. Use a hammer. Oh. <laughs> mm. well, there, might, there might be an opportunity for that answer. We'll see. I you, I, I know exactly which size hammer to use, though. Mm. Big uh, hammer, small it, hammer. I, actually, <laughs> this is a perfect first question to start with. Starting from... A question from Velo Club member Chris Young. Hello, Chris. What is the best way to deal with a bent derailleur hanger when you're out on the road? Clearly, you find a hammer. Hammer or a rock. A rock would be fine. I'd say like it depends how bent it is because you don't want to risk breaking it. But usually, if you carefully stick an Allen key 
in the derailleur itself, you can kind of eyeball it to get it at least close to ride home. Yeah, I would say gen- as a general rule, though, if um, if it's not bent to the point where it's going into your spokes, probably wait till you get home, right? I mean, because the worst thing is like alum- aluminum does not bend back well. Right? Yeah, aluminum eventually breaks. it's going to break. And so you don't want to bend, try to bend it back and end up in a worse situation, which is no derailleur whatsoever. Then, you know, if, if you have a gear or two that work, Call just, just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you definitely don't want to do is sort of just grab the cage and the, the pulley cage and try to use that as leverage to, to bend the whole thing because you know a lot of pulley cages these days are pretty fragile um, so there is definitely a chance that you'll just break it um, and then the other thing is because derailleurs have gotten lighter in general you could potentially bend the body which would make for a much much more expensive fix than just replacing a derailleur hanger yeah if if you're doing i'm assuming he's talking about like a gravel bike uh you know like a People have been throwing an extra der- a derailleur hanger in their mountain bike kits for a very long time because, well, particularly back in the in the good old days before <laughs> derailleurs were kind of tucked away. Like, I mean, I used I used to bust derailleurs off or derailleur hangers off like a couple times a season, and so you just throw it in your pack with your with your tube, and that way you're you're not you know you're not out of luck. And I think if you're riding a lot of gravel, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to have that in your pack as well. I mean, absolute worst case scenario, you take the derailleur off and turn it into a single speed. Yeah. Which we could talk about how to do that. Maybe I'd leave that for another time. You definitely don't use a hammer. <laughs> Unless you're really good with hammers. Like yeah. I <laughs> mm. Moving on. Staying on the derailleur topic, though. Uh, from Twitter user JL Galash. Sorry, I don't really know if I pronounced your name right or if that's even your real name, seeing as how this is Twitter. Uh, they would like to know, however, do derailers, and I assume he, uh, I assume they're talking about derailer pivots, but do derailers need to be lubed or not? I mean, if we're talking about the pivots, then yeah, occasionally for sure, especially if you're power washing your bike or it's a mountain bike and it's getting submerged in streams and stuff. Definitely lube, lube the pivots. Perfect example. We, we, we got stuck in a, in a rainstorm up at Winter Park Oh, yeah. couple, like a month a bit ago and i my sh- rear shifting was so bad and it was like really hard to push it and i i replaced cable and housing and all this other stuff and then we realized that we just needed to drop some lube on all the pivots in the derailleur and then it worked fine so yeah yes you do yeah i mean less common less so on a road bike but yeah basically anything that moves will need lubrication on your bike at some point i think is the probably the simple way to put it right Yep. I guess an easy way that I used to check for this was, at least on a mechanical derailleur, what I used to do was uh, just disconnect the cable completely and then have the bike in a repair stand and kind of just push on the derailleur manually just to see how well it snapped back. And if it didn't snap back very well without a cable attached, then that usually indicated that there was a little extra friction in the derailleur itself somewhere. And then you know from there, you can go ahead and loop the pivots and then hopefully all should be good. Um, moving on. Uh, Alan Taylor Farns would like to know, he's putting latex tubes on, but his 28 millimeter marked uh, Conti uh, Grand Prix 5000s blow up to just over 30 millimeters wide on his Hunt 48 wheels. So given that, does he buy latex tubes that are marked for tires that are 25 to 28 millimeters wide, or does he buy ones that are marked 30 to 38? What are the pros and cons one way or the other? Because he doesn't want them to be stretched too thin. I mean, the bigger ones are definitely going to be hard to get in there. Like I mean, the tire, the new tires, the con- new Contis, like the GP 4000s ran really big, but the new ones seem to run a lot more true to size. Um, so I'm assuming this is 
from the rim being really wide. I'm not familiar with these exact yeah, hunt the, wheels, but the hunts are quite yeah, wide. Twenty twenty. The hunts are really wide. wide. Yeah, I mean, I would personally probably still run the smaller one. Like I would say the latex tubes kind of generally are a bit more stretchy and run bigger, anyways. And if you have a tube that goes to thirty five or something, it's going to be hard to get get it tucked in the tire without pinching it. Yeah, and because the latex tubes are generally a lot thinner and and more flexible in general, I mean, like like Zach said, I mean, it, they are more prone to pinching if you're not careful with the installation. So, yeah, I agree. I would go with the smaller ones, Alan. Uh, getting rid of tubes completely. So Chris Stocks is apparently a member of Team No Tube Inside. You would like to Team know Team Tube Inside. <laughs> Chris would like to know how many layers of tubeless tape is he supposed to run in his wheels? Now he didn't specify what wheel and what tubeless tape and what tire and whatnot. Uh, but anyway, he would like to know how many layers of tubeless tape are you supposed to put in there? Enough to fill up the height I mean, of the tire, right? Cause there's no tube inside. So yeah. you needed like, I don't know, 200 layers and then you don't need air. <laughs> <laughs> never, never flat. <laughs> oh my God. It's probably not even that many. It's probably like 20. Probably. Oh man, that's an interesting project though. I would say like, yeah, there are a lot of variables there, right? Like different tapes are different thicknesses. Different wheels have different, uh, different diameters and every, like the fit in it is going to be different between all these variables. So I would, if it's a normal thin tubeless tape, I would always probably lean towards doing two, especially with the road tires. So they don't poke down in the holes, but I would, I would look towards the manufacturer's instructions and see what they recommend. But like that NV tape, for example, is pretty thick and you don't necessarily want to go around too many times with that. Well, now stuff. the NV tape is thinner. They used uh, to Envy used to use gorilla tape, which they definitely don't use anymore. Right. Um but yeah. I would, I mean not to pick on Envy here, but I would say too, like and I don't know if it still is the case, but they in the instructions that came with the wheels and the video that they had on the internet, they said one person said use one layer and the other said use two. Which so sometimes even one and a half. Sometimes even the companies don't know. <laughs> but g generally speaking, there aren't a whole I lot of downsides to running an extra layer. Um, I mean, the tire might just end up fitting a little bit tighter than you might want, but there are certainly downsides to running too few layers if the tire and rim is meant to be run with more. Because then at that point, you know, you might have to worry about the the tape tearing at a spoke hole or just kind of blowing out or that kind of thing. So. I would err on the side of caution. If there's no specification for your wheel, then I would run two. Yeah. Uh, oh. Customer. More elevator music. Another Bella Club member, David Savage. This is a good one, actually, considering how it's a, a lot good of name people, too. Yeah, I know. David uh, Savage. So given how a lot of people are running their bar, uh, their bikes these days, he is asking, if you were planning an N equals one drop bar bike with multiple wheel sets, how do you handle the drivetrain? What chain rings and cassettes would you run? In terms of a gravel bike that Ooh. does road and gravel? Well, I would imagine so. Or are we talking like a road bike that you have two different road wheel sets for? Well, no, I mean, I am imagining something like, you know, we mentioned Bella Club member Chris Young a few minutes ago. Chris has a Cervelo Aspero that I know he has one set of wheels for gravel and one set of wheels for road so that he can ride on tarmac and also gravel. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I would imagine that that's also what David is inquiring about here. So uh, assuming that we're talking about one road and one kind of off-roady wheel set, how yep. would you handle the drivetrain? 
I have an yellow e car. I would keep the same cassette size and same keep everything identical. That way, you don't have to adjust anything when you swap wheels. Because, um, like, let's say you have a road wheel set that has a twenty-eight cassette on it, and you're going up to a thirty-four on your gravel wheel set or something. Like, you're gonna need, you should adjust the B tension screw in between them to have things shift properly. And I mean, if I was swapping wheels between uh, on the same bike, I would I would want it to be as easy as possible so that I actually do that. I mean, I ran into this issue a little bit earlier. Uh, I still have to write this bike up, but testing that 3T Explorer Race Max, the, uh, 3T actually shipped that bike with two wheel sets, uh, one kind of more roady setup with uh, 700 by 35 Pirellis, uh, and then another one with uh, 27.5 wheels set up with a set of uh, GX Barzos, I think it was. Um, but they shipped that bike actually with, uh, it was set up as a one by, but they shipped, they shipped it with two different cassettes and two different chains that were pre-sized, uh, but using- Yeah, no one's gonna do that yeah, and, in real and, world. And also using two different derailleurs. So while in theory, it wasn't that big of a deal to swap him, like I was able to do the swap in what, like five, 10 minutes or something, just swapping all those parts because they were pre-configured. But the reality is, yeah. I mean, I think people are gonna want that think, to be as simple as possible. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of people that have, a lot of customers that have this idea, they get a gravel bike and they're like, selling all my other bikes. This is my one bike to do it at all. And I'm going to have a couple different wheel sets. And then in, in real world practice, like that extra five or 10 minutes it takes to swap wheels. They don't do 100%. it and you just ride whatever wheels yep. are on the bike. Yep. Yep. That, that's what my yeah, wife I does. Feel like, I mean, she's got a gravel bike and we, we, we swap like two or three times a year. Yeah. yeah. And I think when people, and like, if you're really going to do it all the time, I always definitely try and push people to use same brand hub, same, same cassette, same rotor. So everything lines up as easy as possible. Because even if you have the same cassette and same rotor, but you have two different brand hubs, the spacing is going to be ever so slightly different. And the tolerances these days with everything are so tight that you're going to have to uh, adjust things. Yeah, yeah, for right. Sure. And I guess w uh, with a lot of modern drivetrains now, I mean, the gearing range that they offer, whether it be for gravel or road, I mean, it's so broad that a lot of times you can find a setup that works pretty well for both. Um, it's, just, it's just that you might be, you know, you might spend you know, like your time in the upper two thirds of the, of the cassette or the, the gear range on a two by setup with your road wheels. And you might spend a little bit more time in the lower two thirds of the gearing range with your gravel setup, but you can still use the same total setup. Yep. I, w I was going to say that probably a two by is definitely the way to go. Oh, I yeah. mean, a one by one by is great for gravel. I love it for gravel. I, I don't mind it for road if you live in the right they're, place, they're but I think for the most part, yeah, there are definitely limitations and you might as well, if you're really going to be swapping back and forth and you're going to spend a decent amount of time on pavement, just, just keep the double and make sure that you have a nice wide gear range. And, yeah. you know, like a one-to-one -one is usually plenty for most gravel riding. And that's, uh, that's generally pretty close to what a lot of road bikes have these days. So, yeah, go go with a double. Get some like GRX or something. Make sure all the parts are as identical as possible in the stuff that you're swapping. And yeah, and and there. on that point, and also consider having yeah, two that's, bikes. Yeah, that's that's my point. Yeah. Is I mean, if you're getting to the <laughs> point where uh, you know you're looking that that you want to swap cranks or cassettes because the gearing off road is not suitable for your on road group riding and all that type of stuff, then you really are at a point where you're better off with two bikes. Yeah, I mean, I would personally, I would rather have two. Two aluminum bikes yep. of a road bike and a gravel bike rather than one carbon do everything bike. All right. Moving on to another gearing question. This is a pretty interesting one. This one comes from Kevin Budhue. He's re-entering the mountain bike world after a nine-year hiatus. Ooh. Heck yeah. I, yeah, exactly. And he's wondering- Mountain bikes are sweet. He's wondering- is the future. What, yeah. But he's wondering what happened to two-by drivetrains. So like, 
You imagine like you know, if you if you take a nap for nine years and you look at what's available on the market, like you basically can't find a two by drivetrain on the market at the moment. So I'm trying to think when I nine years ago, what did I have on a mountain bike? I definitely had a double. I had a double. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like we had doubles, but like triples were still a thing and kind of a thing at that point. Triples were dying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the short answer to that is front derailers are the worst. On, no, I I, hate I disagree. I think the front worst. front derailers work really well when they're made well. I would say the biggest proponent of this is just like suspension design. Yeah, kind of pushed away the front derailleur. Well, the, I mean, also, I mean, there has also been, I mean. I don't think anyone would argue really that the big, you know, kind of like the the big push toward getting rid of gears up front has been done by SRAM. I mean, SRAM has just never really liked front derailleurs very much, especially off road. Um, so they have been progressively. I also getting... don't like things that don't like me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what to take from that, Caleb. Uh, <laughs> Um, but anyway, front derailers don't so, like SRAM. Well, I won't say it. So, SRAM, yeah. so SRAM we know what you mean. Had, yeah. So SRAM has been progressively moving away from multiple chainrings up front, and in the process of doing that, basically what they've done is, you know, now with the whole one by setup, and you know, SRAM is a really good example of this because they have that super super mega wide 1052 Eagle 12 uh, 12 speed cassette in the back now. Um, you know, super eagle. Yeah, with yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know why they didn't change the name of that. Like bigger eagle, like you know, more talony eagle, sharper eagle. Anyway, I feel um, like they should have been mega eagle for like yeah, homage to mega range. Totally, totally. <laughs> um, but you know, now with those super wide range one by drivetrains, you can basically get the same. I mean, I haven't crunched the numbers, but it might even be bigger range than you could have gotten before on on the doubles that were around the last time you were you were heading off road. And you just have a lot less complication. You know, you again, you have that one chain ring. You don't have a front derailleur. You know, it frees up that side of the bar for a dropper lever control. Um, and so you still have all this control. Uh, you still have all this gearing range. You still have reasonable gaps in between that work, at least well off-road. It's not great for road riding, but off-road it's fine. Um, and I think the general consensus is just that it just works better. Yeah, you don't have to drop as many chains. I mean, I, the, the, the biggest, the biggest, you probably didn't have a clutch back then no. and oh, God, that's no. the biggest change between between your old drivetrain and the new drivetrain and that's what you'll actually notice the most and kind of makes the biggest difference in terms of like how quiet everything is and how the chain stays on and all that the one by i mean the two are connected right you kind of need the clutch to make the one by work but yeah there's no question that the modern stuff is, is significantly better and don't don't pine for the days of the two by the modern one by yeah, you can still buy shimano two by you can if you're yeah weird you can. Yep. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like some european market really loves that yeah and that that's why that's that's bad. why shimano still offers the two by his the european market um there is no demand for it anywhere else uh and yeah you won't find it on any modern american produced bike or you know designed bike and i feel like the, it wasn't that long ago i i reviewed an xtr group for vela news and shimano refused to send me a one by yeah. chain ring but they that, were like that no Shimano, that xtr group set front derailleur shifted so so well. good it was so good yeah but but i Instead still don't of, want front shifting no. i don't want to have to think about I mean, it i think the bicycle industry as a whole like kind of killed the front derailleur even before sram started pushing the one by like the front derailleur there was like this line lines of skews that for one model of front derailleur because there were like 18 different front derailleur mounts and then you had all of those in top pole for the cable and bottom pole for the cable and it, oh, it was just terrible. Well, I remember even you know 15 years ago, you had 
you know, three clamp diameters and then top hole or bottom pole. And then you also had top swing and bottom swing. And yep, I mean, and that exactly. was that long ago. And now you have- And that all, was before you got all the direct mount stuff. Yeah, all the direct mount stuff, all the different direct mount standards, cable different cable entry paths, it, you know, different bottom bracket standards. Like it, it is just never ending. So it just makes a lot of sense, certainly from bicycle mountain bike frame design anyway, to just get rid of the front derailleur completely. It just makes things so much easier on a whole lot of fronts. Yeah, I remember. So I guess there's your answer. Yeah, and I, on that, I remember um, what the head of engineering at BMC telling me that they used to start their full suspension designs with a front derailleur in CAD, and then they'd design the frame from there. So front derailleur, and then you design the, placement for the front derailleur and then the pivot point so i mean yeah removing that just completely changes how you design a bike it's a good thing speaking of chain rings going in the other direction twitter user shelltown sorry i don't have your full name uh they recently tried and then gave up on some absolute black oval chain rings that they got for free uh said they kept dropping the chain even with a di2 front derailleur uh, are the chain rings dumb or is he? That's what he's asking. Ooh, Zach, I would like to get both. your take on this. <laughs> I mean, they're free chain rings. So if they don't work, then you're out nothing, right? I mean, I would say as a, not we're not just going to call out absolute black, but I would say across the board, everyone that makes oval chain rings, they definitely shift worse. So if he's on DI2 and coming from Shimano chain rings, it's, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, because so, he, he's going normally from the absolute you can, best to less than best. Yeah, normally you can make them work, but if your expectations are Shimano chain rings, then you're going to be sad. But you can probably make them work to the point where they don't fall off. Yeah, right? I mean, because the absolute black ones and like the rotor ones and everything, those are at least like more of an oval. Like the, what is it, the osymmetric ones? Those ones, like, they, yeah, like, you just keep it in, keep it in one chain ring. They were like rectangles. That's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not stupid and the chain rings aren't stupid, but both... I'd say Both could use lower your expectations if you want to run the oval rings. <laughs> I, I would, and, and again, our apologies to Absolute Black, but you know, if you are, if you are having sufficient issues with your front shifting that you feel the need to contact us about it because it's been causing so many issues, I think our general recommendation would be to go back to Shimano round chain rings for you. Yeah, or or reach out to the company Absolute Black. Say like, this is a setup I have. What am I doing wrong? Like we can talk about it, but. Like absolute black, they know their product inside and out. They should be able to say, "Oh yeah, you, you do this and you do that, and then it works." Right. But either way, right. I mean, if you switch from a Shimano round chain ring to even yeah, a non to even a non Shimano round chain ring, it is not correct. going to shift it's, as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Shimano chain rings are the absolute benchmark of the industry in terms of shift quality. Uh, and dare I say, anything that is non round is at the opposite end of that. You gotta <laughs> he, correct. He, you What's gotta the opposite wonder. of benchmark? Hmm. I, mm. I don't know. Anchor. Uh, <laughs> the, you you got to wonder, like, if she, it, yeah, oh, <laughs> but you have to wonder, like, this is a little off topic, but if Shimano actually decided to make an oval chain ring themselves, how, like, I would be so curious to know how well they could make that, that thing shift. Or do I mean, you, or, still shift well. They had Biopace. Yeah. Well, yeah, done and, it. and it worked pretty well, but, you know, you have to think, like, you know, in a in a well, I mean, again, biopace is non-round, yes, but it was you know, of course, a different philosophy and whatnot. Um, but like, if Shimano internally actually decided, like, you know, hey, we should do an oval chain ring, 
I feel like they would over-engineer. It would ha- like the front derailleur would be attached with a linkage or something, oh, so it would absolutely. go up and down and follow. <laughs> absolutely, follow the the chain ring. <laughs> it, it it would be completely over-engineered, but it would probably also still work. Oh yeah, you could shift without carrying, and it would shift to the big ring and not mm. fall off. Oh, I'm so intrigued. Key. Don't do it, Shimano. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the problem with oval rings. Though, like, let's say Shimano came out with the oval ring. And then XY company is going to come out with an oval ring to go on those Shimano cranks and say, our oval is 0.2% better and will save you more watts than the Shimano oval ring. Like, because our oval technology is more ovally. Like, <laughs> that's just how the bike industry works. We are the ovalist. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Kaylee, you and I have been testing a crank that is, um, oh. <laughs> it is round. Kaylee. It is round. It's not oval. It's definitely very much well. Let's just say maybe it has a few too many circles going on inside of it. I mean, I, and we will we will discuss this at a later that, date. I was sprinting against Kaylee, and I thought I handedly beat him, and then it turns out he broke said crank. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But anyway, like I said, we I will mean, save d- this. You did beat me. <laughs> I did. Like I said, we it's will because I this, couldn't pedal. Uh, we will save this discussion for another day because I feel like this is arguably a topic that is worthy of its own segment. So we'll come back yep. to this. Next question. Agreed. Next question. We are going to move on to mysterious noises here. Ooh. Yeah. Fun. Francis Spooky. Speaker has one of those single bolt zip carbon seat posts on his Viathon R1 with a carbon railed physique saddle. He doesn't. Yep. He does not want to swap it out, but. It is squeaking, and I'm assuming he says he means creaking. But either either way, it's making noise like crazy. What should he do? I mean, I would say I don't. I've not assembled a Viathlon, so I don't know how well they come. But I would start out with putting carbon paste in the frame where the seat post goes, and then probably greasing all of the the seat post like that circle interface. And if it still is making noise, a lot of times the saddle rails where they enter the saddle, like in the plastic, that also creaks. Or it could be something un- completely unrelated. It could be like a right pedal or something, yeah. not a seat yeah. post. Yeah, I was going to say the same, which is if it is actually squeaking, it's probably more likely the saddle than it is the seat post. The seat post is more likely yeah. to creak than squeak. The squeak is going to be plastic. Yeah. He should send an audio file of him imitating the noise. Oh, you that know, would allow us allow us to further diagnose. That would be a really interesting news. Uh, I don't know if I want to open ourselves up to this. No, so we it. have a phone number. People can leave messages. <laughs> I don't. We have a no, special phone no, number that, no, we I, don't. that I made. No, we don't. No, you, if you're going to no, do no, this, don't. you have to post it on Twitter for everyone to hear. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I'll look it up and then people can send us audio files of their noise. No, not great. of the noise. Like you imitating the noise. <laughs> oh, oh, even better. To be better. clear here. Yeah. Oh, now, like now, we're, that's, getting, now yeah. we're getting somewhere. Okay. Yeah. yeah not, not like hold a, a phone and record your bike, but like <laughs> you have to get off your bike and then make the noise and send <laughs> it in. Exactly. Oh, this is good. All right. All right. That is absolutely 100% what we're going to do for our next Nerd Alert podcast. All right. Yep. Another. another... Should we make this a call-in show? <laughs> Should we, though? No. 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 Let, 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 let's, let's not do that. I think, I think we've got enough to handle as it is. We Moving... could be like click and clack the Tapper Brothers. We could. We could. But we're not going to be. Moving on. Moving on, damn it. So Julius Cobbett on Twitter would like to know what causes brake chatter on road forks and how do you stop it? Rim brake or disc brake? You know, they didn't say. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump in though because regardless of whether it's a rim brake or disc brake, I mean, I suspect that it's, well, actually it really could be either. But either way, 
regardless of what type of brakes you have, if your road fork is chattering, that's usually a pretty good indication that your road fork is not very stiff. Yeah. I mean, usually that's a problem with cantilevers back in the day of cyclocross, much less so with rim brakes and disc brakes. Yeah. Because I remember, um, I mean, unfortunately not to pick on Easton, but I remember Easton cyclocross carbon forks used to be pretty notorious for this because they were so oh, yeah. light that, you know, especially if you had a pretty good cantilever brake setup that actually generated some friction, you would end up with this crazy oscillation where like it would almost, you would almost have like anti-lock brakes because like the cantilever pads would grab the rim and then the fork would flex back and then it would kind of let go and then like spring back and forth. It was awful. Well, um, and the cantilever had a cable that was coming down and that actually shortened and, and then it lo- like yes. lengthened as the fork. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. Super cool. <laughs> It was great. Candies for life. <laughs> it, was, it was not good at all. But again, but I mean, like if remember when cross races were like, no, cannies. Yeah. They're sweet. And they everyone were else sweet. was like, I was, no. I was full on team canny. And I, everyone that was a mountain biker, except for Zach, who's the only person on earth, was like, what are you talking about? The problem, though, is that when, they, when that whole transition was happening, it was going to mechanical disc brakes, which yeah. were garbage. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, that was, a, that was very a true. I mean, I think, anyway. I, I think I still have a set of Avid Shorty Ultimates in a bag somewhere here. Oh, I have a bike with them on it. Yeah, they're me sweet. too. What? That... Incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're not, like the sweetest are the old spookies. There's literally the carbon sweet about candy. Oh over. man, yeah. you, you, you and Miguel Martinez should go for a ride sometime. Yeah, I still have a candy cross bike. <laughs> and when was the last time you rode that bike, Dave? Uh, it was like two months ago. I've actually got a group set on that I'm meant to be testing, but uh, you know, it's got cantilevers, so I don't really want to ride it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a we flexi fork. It's a flexi fork, and you probably need to like. You know, double check all the bolts and stuff like that. Yeah. Make sure nothing I mean, weird. It could is be going like on. the headset's loose. If it's disc, it, maybe it's not fork chatter. Maybe you have like the infamous SRAM turkey gobble noise, which is where our call in with your noise description, <laughs> you could figure this out. <laughs> like it could might, maybe it's not fork chatter. Maybe it's brake noise. Okay. <laughs> I guess the other thing, just to be sure, um, I would also. <laughs> I would also recommend that you pull that fork out of the frame just to make sure that it is not damaged or cracked or anything, because maybe this is your bike giving you a warning sign that it's tired. Yeah. I mean, there's so many variables too. Like this could be like the hub bearings or something are going bad. Like the, I feel like they should write a second tweet with more information about exactly either, what they have. Either way, something, something is moving in a way that yeah. should not be moving. And it could be either that something is loose or that something is just flexing to the point where it just can't be controlled under braking. So I'd say it's, it's don't, more than likely one of those two things. Don't ignore the problem. Your bike is trying to tell you that it needs help. Yes. Listen to your bike. Your bike is talking to you. Listen to your bike. Moving on. Uh, this comes from a former coworker of mine, actually, when I was over at Cycling News, Mark Zaleski. Uh, and yeah, and he, he has done some work with SRAM neutral service before. And like, he's, you know, he sat on the back of moto and that sort of thing. Um, and he is wondering, he would like to know if we are hearing from pro mechanics that through axle wheel changes are impractical with current technology. Is there a better alternative? I mean, every better alternative is everyone just does bike changes. Right. Yeah, basically. And that team, that seems to be mostly what's happened. I I will say that like, uh, all of the quote unquote sort of quick removal through axle things that I've used, like the Mavic version and the rest of them. Mavic speed release is the worst thing ever. It actually takes longer because nothing sits where it's supposed to, like in theory it works, Yeah. but then it's like half a millimeter off and then the 
wheel doesn't and also, come out and like it's stuck in the hub. So then all your spare wheels also need the through axle. And let's say you are in a bike race and your team car is way back. So neutral comes to you and they go to try and give you a wheel, but their spare wheel doesn't have a through axle in it, but yours is stuck in your wheel because that's how this works. Then it's no longer a speed release. It's a very slow release. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, to yes. add to that, I think some of the teams are actually having safety issues with the RAT system, Focus's RAT system, which is also used by Cervelo and a few other, a few other brands. Uh, so those teams have actually, you know, they've gone to just standard threaded systems. Um, Lapierre comes to mind, you know, their previous generation bikes were using the RAT system. They're now just using a standard thread. Um, I mean, even the same with Cervelo, their bikes came stock with uh, the RAT system and now they're coming yeah. with... Yeah. All so yeah, in a race stuff. situation, my understanding is that that rat system would allow you to think that you'd lodge the the pronged through axle in place, and then the rider would get down the road, and the axle would fall out of the frame. Yeah. I mean, the problem with that too is it's external cam, and you're always going to get gunk, and it's going to feel like it's getting tight, and it's not actually. Yeah. I mean, an, an impact driver and a traditional through axle seems like the fastest through axle. I mean, I would almost think option. too, like all the most of the team bikes have through axles that are just a, a hex key in them. Right. But I would almost think that like, if we're talking about speediness, like if you put a handle on all those then the rider could stop, take the wheel off themselves and then the mechanic could put it in rather than, cause even with the driver, right? Like it, it's not, there's not like a magnet on one end of a magnet on the other. Right. So you like unthread it with the drill and the chance that the through axle falls off the drill is pretty high. Yeah. I have, I, I have actually seen some teams modify, with magnets inside the axles and stuff for that reason to keep it all retained or use like a spring clip on the on the tool bit which retains the uh which retains the axle um but then yeah i guess whatever way you're doing it you know those impact drivers they also have been known to break the axles at times you know, so, you know the the team mechanics are now actually carrying spare axles in the case that one cracks um so so yeah but yeah speed wise they're actually getting damn quick at these things um you know, like the uh, one of the guys that was formerly Quick Step mechanic, um, Rune, who's moved to Ineos now. I mean, he was the first guy I knew to ever have a impact driver um, in the World Tour. Now he's back on rim brakes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a good point actually. But yeah, he was he was kind of the guy that that brought like the, the impact driver to the road to the to the World Tour. Um, and he, you know, he was telling me he was measured at like eight seconds for a wheel change, which is yeah. I mean, the thing that like. A rim brake wheel with a regular quick release, it's repeatable. Like it's gonna be fast almost every time unless you just really mess something up. But the disc the chance of like like you're not gonna be able to do that fast ten out of ten times. It's just not gonna happen. Things go weird. So basically I feel we like this sort of just highlights yet again the the difference in needs between professional racers and everyday riders because for us, it doesn't really matter if we can get a wheel off in eight seconds or eighteen seconds or eighty seconds. Like this just right. doesn't matter. Um, which which would not, suggest yeah. that pro riders should still be on rim brakes and quick releases, but you know that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best thing for everybody. So that's one thing I was actually having this conversation with someone the other day. So many bikes come with Mavic speed release. Ninety nine point nine percent of consumers that are buying a bicycle don't need their wheels to come off quickly. So why are all these bikes coming with this? They don't want them to feature? come off quickly. So like, why are all the bikes coming with speed release? bike industry the bike industry yeah because I, I, I feel like too with those there's extra variable of the wheel not always sitting in there. like if the dropout's made perfectly then yeah sure it's fine but usually there's 
there's so much slop in the system that the wheel sits in a different spot every time. It, it'd be it'd be like the equivalent of my Toyota Highlander coming with the same hub system that they use in Formula One. Mm -hmm. It's just exactly. not necessary. So why do all the bikes come with that? Well, it's so answer you can me ride, this bike industry. It's so, it's so you can ride the same bike yeah, as the pros, Zach. Duh. Yeah, but put a different dropout on it. The pros used to file off their lawyer tabs when people rode around here with lawyer tabs. And people That's used to thing. Yep. and people used to file off their lawyer tabs. Because yep. quick releases work well. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, try not to be grumpy here, but <laughs> All right, last question, and then we are going to wrap up. This one comes from Yost for stopping. Yost would like to know, well, he would like our advice. Is that Max's really. dad? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Because his, I think it probably is. Well, no, yeah, this, this, is, is. this is Yost for stopping, not Yost for stop for stopping with an A. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, spelled differently. Yeah. So he's Yost for stopping. Well, here, yeah, yes. So is it a break question? For those that know, we're talking Please about Max Verstappen, the well, F1 driver, whose well, dad is Yost. Yes, but but I'm I'm quite certain that it is not that Yost because this Yost has a 1986 Schwinn Paramount with 11 speed. It's definitely not the same yes, one. No, with, and this Schwinn Paramount is equipped with 11 speed Altegra mechanical Altegra, I presume, and an all carbon Sweet. fork. And he would like to know if he should keep that bike or get an all uh, or get a new all carbon rig with disc brakes, wide rims, and all the quote unquote modern goodies. He says that he loves the bike. It also fits 28 millimeter tires, but he's kind of feeling a little left out. I mean, I would think if you're looking for an excuse to buy a new bike, then for sure buy a new bike. But I don't think you should get rid of the Schwinn because a steel sweet. bike steel bike with modern components is really cool yeah i agree agreed like maybe it's not a daily driver but bust it out on the weekend coffee ride for sure or i guess i guess my thing has always been like you know we we all cover you know kind of the latest and greatest in bikes you know zach you were always working on the latest and greatest thing but that all said it's i mean true. ultimately the goal for the vast majority of people who are riding these bikes i mean unless you are racing bikes for a living and it absolutely matters that you have the fastest most efficient thing whatever Ultimately, the most important thing is that you ride a bike that makes you feel good when you're riding it. So at least from my perspective, Yos, if you feel like this bike still makes you happy when you get on it and ride, then by all means, keep it. And, you know, as Zach said, if you're looking for an excuse to get a new bike, by all means, get a new bike and just have something different to ride if you want a little bit of variety. But do not get rid of that shit. Yep. Uh, just to add to that, I would say if you can get a test ride on the type of bike that you're thinking about getting, then that will surely give you the confirmation whether you should or shouldn't get that said bike. Uh, you know, if you get on it and it doesn't change your world and it doesn't change the way you love riding, then stick to what you're on. Well, like upgrade, upgrade the Schwinn, put some fast wheels on it. Like it's going to immediately change the ride of it. That bike True. could be. Could you imagine that bike with like a super sweet set of modern aero wheels on it? Yeah, that bike could awesome. be awesome. Anyway, support support the current bike. There's there's no losing here. Yeah. The only the only way you lose here is if you get rid of the current bike. Agreed. But if you just get a new bike and keep your current bike, then you just you just have more sweet bikes, and that's it's a win win. It's so, definition of a win-win. So, Yos, basically, that, there's our take on it. Absolutely do not get rid of that Schwinn. If you do get a different bike, though, please let us know because I'd love to hear what you think of that new bike and how it is relative to your old bike and whether or not you kept it. We really hope you kept it. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up today. I think we're at right about an hour. And 
And I think Zach is just about to get happy here, so I think we're we've, we've exhausted his grumpiness. So it's definitely time I mean, to wrap I've got, up. I've got work to do, so he does have work to do. <laughs> wrap it up. I've got work to do. All right. So a, what what bike is in the stand over there? The bike in the stand is a Sarto. A Sarto. Oh, a, oh interesting. Like Thirteen and change pound rim brake bike. Sweet. Some lightweights. There's also SRM. a There's also the Dogma with the rear suspension hanging up over here. Yep. Oh my. Fate. And a Villier. The, the what is it? The, the zero, the one that I was on last summer. That looks sweet. A tarmac SL7, a Cipollini. Got some of, good stuff in right now. Fun bikes. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll let Zach get back to work. All right. Zach needs to get back to work so he can get paid. I guess Kay- Kaylee did clarify that we do pay Zach for participating Zach. in these podcasts. By the way, so we yeah, are not take, we're not exploiting Zach. We may be exploiting him a little bit, but we're not exploiting him that much. Just mildly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks as always for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to Nerd Alert on whatever platform you get your podcast from. And please consider leaving us a review on iTunes so it helps more people find us. Maybe most importantly, tell your friends about Nerd Alert because we think this podcast is really good. We hope you think it's really good too. And we would like more people to listen to it. And with that, we'll see you for now. And we'll see you back here in two weeks. Bye. Bye, everybody.